welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Is there a single principle, or a coherent set of principles, that would make sense of the idea of free speech? Is there a clear guide we can follow to know when speech is merely speech, or when it constitutes an action and hence can be prohibited? or a clear rule or guide to knowing what is hate speech and can be banned on that basis. My guest today argues that there's not, and that most of the time when we invoke free speech in political debates, we misapply it. My guest today is Professor Stanley Fish. Professor Fish is one of the country's leading public intellectuals, and a world-renowned literary theorist and legal scholar. He began his academic career in the English department at the University of California, and then became Kagan Professor of English and Humanities at John Hopkins, where he taught from 74 through to 85, before becoming Arts and Sciences Professor of English and Professor of Law at Duke. He was the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois from 99 to 04 and he's currently a Distinguished Visiting Professor of Law at Yeshiva University uh, in New York City. Professor Fish is a famously prolific author, having written over 200 scholarly books and articles, which I won't name all of them here, but they include Winning Arguments, and How to Write a Sentence, and How to Read One. Uh, Fish is both a former columnist for the New York Times and a New York Times uh, best-selling author, and his essays have also appeared in The Chronicle of Higher Education, Harper's, Esquire, and The Atlantic. This episode is going to be the first part of a two-parter, and they both are quite nicely self-contained. So in the first one, we do a theoretical discussion of free speech and and what various claims that are made about it mean for liberalism and the liberal project. And then in the second, we take on the issue of university politics, with Professor Fish arguing that universities should be kept free from partisan political politics and criticising many of the sort of student movements that we've uh, we've seen growing there, and me um, arguing for a different understanding of the political and offering a partial defense of student social justice movements. So both of those conversations were about an hour, and like I say, they're both quite nicely self-contained, so this works well as two episodes, and I don't think you need to listen to, you know, them in order or anything. Just before we get started, I'm going to make one slight change to the structure of the podcast that's been requested by listeners. So I'm going to, at the end, add in a section which is essentially just a bibliography. So a lot of times people, you know, particularly in discussions with guests, we just reference a particular book or idea or quote. And I get a bunch of requests for, like, what's the citation on that, essentially. Um, because obviously these interviews are quite long. If you're trying to find a particular thing, it can be 
annoying to have to dig through like a whole hour, hour and a half interview. So I totally get that. So what I'm going to do going forward is at the end of every episode, I'll just do a quick section where I'm like, these are the works that were referenced in this conversation. So if you are looking for a citation from the podcast, what you do then is you can just go straight to the end of the episode and I'll list all the works that we discussed in that end bit. I'm not going to do it retroactively, like there's almost 100 episodes now, so I'm not going to go back and add that to all of them. But going forward, if I have a conversation that warrants it, um, I'll add a bibliography to it at the end, or whatever the auditory equivalent of a bibliography is. So stay tuned at the end if you want a quick list of um, the books referenced in this, and I'll just add that in um, as part of the sort of general closing. Apart from that, let's get started. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed having this conversation. It is a challenging conversation. Like, we cover quite a lot of ideas quite fast, and one of the things I'm going to add to the bibliography, or whatever you want to call it at the end, is I'm going to go and I'll not only tell you the works referenced, but in some parts I'll be able to say, if you want to hear about this idea in more detail, I have an episode, either a solo episode or an interview, where you can take like a whole hour to just explore that one particular thing that we covered quite quickly in this. And that is the advantage of having yeah, been doing this podcast for a while now, is we now have like a body of work as resources to draw on. So if you're interested in a particular theme that we mention again, stay tuned at the end. As always, if you enjoy this show, please do share it on your own social media. The fact that I'm having conversations like this and people are interested in hearing what I thought would only ever interest like five people is incredible. Um, so if you do enjoy it, please do share it because um, there will be other people out there who are sort of interested in these sorts of things but don't know about this podcast yet. Um, so please do help out that way. All of the growth we've had in this podcast, which I still have to pinch myself about sometimes, has just been organic through people sharing on social media, forwarding to friends, recommending. So podcast goes out for free. If you enjoy it, please do help us spread the word. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you part one of my conversation with Professor Stanley Fish. I am joined today by Professor Stanley Fish. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So, you've worn a lot of hats in your year, and I was scrolling through some of the bios of you online, and um, sort of thinking, how am I going to introduce this guy? Um, what's a simple, if, I mean, to put it in a slightly cliche way, if you're at a party and someone doesn't know you, and they say, oh, you know, what, a, what do you do? What's your, like, one-sentence response to that? One sentence. 
Well, I mean, too. What if, I, <laughs> if you. What I do is try to unpack arguments, and to some extent, but not always. I avoid coming down on one side of the dispute, whatever it might be. Instead, I'm interesting in anatomizing uh, the construction of arguments uh, and revealing uh, what about them uh, isn't apparent on their face. Hmm. How do you self-identify intellectually? Because you've been described, um, criticised even, as either postmodernist or relativist. But I've I've read some stuff that you prefer the term anti-foundationalist. Did I get that one right? You got that right. Uh, certainly I would not uh, accept the word relativist, because as I say in this book and elsewhere, relativism is a position in philosophy. It is uh, not a recipe for life. No one has ever been a relative, relativist. So urging relativist, relativism as a way of life would be urging uh, you to stand to one side of your beliefs uh, and not prefer them in any way to the beliefs of others, and that's not a possible thing to do. So we strike out relativism. Uh, I am interested in postmodernism and uh, uh, the arguments uh, it makes and the responses uh, to those arguments, uh, but I'm not, I think, a hardcore theoretical postmodernist in the mode of Foucault or Lyotard uh, or Derrida. And that leaves us with anti-foundationalism, uh, which is fairly close, I think, uh, to the kind of pragmatism uh, associated with the late uh, Richard Rorty, uh, where one uh, denies uh, the availability, not the existence, one de denies the availability of ob objective truths or of a perspective above uh, perspectives, and says instead that we must live with and within the institutional resources that we have developed uh, over time. Uh, so that form of uh, anti-foundationalism, which blends into uh, pragmatism, is, I think, uh, the proper identifying place for me. Yeah, as just an opinion aside, I think sometimes people use those three terms interchangeably when they shouldn't. And what That's they... correct, <laughs> What what they seem to sort of mean by it is that you're you, they're dis, they're disquieted with your views because they think you're taking away a certain objectivity from them that they want to be there. But those like they're, they're three different things. And just for, I mean I don't have your intellectual background, but people often describe my views as postmodernist when what they really mean by that is. I believe in essential contestability, and I don't think moral concepts can sort of be judged independent of other moral concepts and certain historical traditions of thinking about them. But that's not really what postmodernism is, and it's certainly not relativism. But people just sort of mean, I want the world to be more secure than you're telling me that it is, you know? I think that's absolutely right. I'm fond of quoting something that Rorty said. I don't know exactly where he wrote it if he did. He said, objectivity is the kind of thing we do around here. Mm -hmm. uh, by which he meant that in whatever practice you happen to be engaged, there are going to be rules of the game and a set of authorized protocols uh, and a uh, collection 
of approved uh, facts to which everyone in the enterprise more or less agrees. And within that whole package, it's possible to say with some confidence, this is true, uh, this is uh, false, uh, this is, rests on a firm basis, and this does not. So that the only objectivity that's taken away uh, by this uh, uh, form of thought uh, is the objectivity that would exist independently of and apart from all human frames of reference. Hmm. Uh, but since, since no sense really uh, could be made of that concept, when you take that away, you're not taking away anything. You're losing the illusion of having something, which is why anti-foundationalist... Um... <laughs> It, it, it more neatly captures it, because you're just saying in a, in a sort of fundamental sense, there's not a foundation insofar as you have different systems of objectivity and different systems of discovering and analysing meaning, but right. you, you don't have a foundation to adjudicate between them. Although when you're, as I say, embedded within a practice, which is usually within uh, some kind of institutional uh, structure, uh, you are usually... Uh, uh, confident uh, in your ways of proceeding and in the conclusions that those ways of proceeding um, deliver. Uh, you don't. You do not give up the possibility of standing of standing strongly uh, for something. You just couldn't uh, tie that something you stand for uh, to some brute empirical reality or to the word of God or to reason with a capital R or to any of the other invariant transcendentals that people long for. Right, right. I mean, yeah, that, that all makes perfect sense to me. Um, but I, I go over it just because I think, I think people are both uneasy with and unsure about the sort of specifics of that. Um, moving on to your latest book, um, the first, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. Could you say a few words about how you came to write it? Because you've been discussing this theme for some time now. You wrote um, Why There's No Such Thing as Free Speech. Um, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this isn't something new for you, right? No, it isn't. I provoked to write the book because of uh, the overuse uh, of the First Amendment, uh, both by the general public and sometimes uh, by scholars. That is the habit of attaching First Amendment, uh, the resonance of the First Amendment, to any issue in which you happen to be interested. Uh, and I wanted to try to explain that the First Amendment is a limited constitutional doctrine uh, that applies only in certain circumstances, and that free speech itself, um, as a doctrine, doesn't have a philosophical center, um, but uh, has a different shape and varies in its application. Uh, with different sociological contexts. Let me give you an example of the kind of thing that irritates me. Uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, as you may recall, a, an assistant general manager of the Houston Rockets basketball team uh, tweet, tweeted out, uh, support freedom, support Hong Kong. Uh, immediately, there was a backlash, uh, in large part because China is the largest and growing uh, market uh, for what the National Basketball Association uh, sells. And it was felt, I think, uh, quite reasonably uh, that remarks like this uh, might endanger uh, the, the further health uh, of, of, of that 
of that commercial and cultural enterprise. So, but as soon as there was pushback on what uh, the assistant general manager said, people started crying, free speech, free speech, free speech. But what I want to say is there are no free speech issues in sight. Uh, in that incident, uh, that is, the government uh, did not step in either to prevent him from speaking or to punish him uh, for speaking. He was a private individual working for a private company, and that private company has every right uh, to monitor not only the words but the clothing and uh, activities uh, in general um, of its of, of of its employers. So this was, in fact, a commercial slash social slash cultural dispute, but it was not a dispute uh, that had anything to do with the First Amendment. So one of my goals in writing uh, this book is to uh, make people more sensitive to what is and what is not a First Amendment issue. Okay. I mean, there's a potential line of pushback you could think about there along to, to some extent of like to... to how strictly do we conceive um, the government-private divide? And, you know, is that a hardline thing, or do some of the same rules of political power and accountability apply to, say, very powerful corporations in the same way as they apply to very powerful governments? Um, before we get to that, though, um, so one aim is um, to sort of try and delineate exactly what the First Amendment is and isn't. Another aim, if I read the book right, would be following along from what we said about anti-foundationalism, to say that free speech is not a fixed, coherent foundation from which we can derive a comprehensive value system. So you Absolutely write... right. So you write in the introduction, and I highlighted this because um, I thought it summed it all up quite nicely. You said, free speech is not, despite Justice Robert Jackson's memorable pronouncement, the fixed star in our constitutional constellation, end quote. The abiding light that will guide us through the kaleidoscope of circumstances, if only we keep our eyes on it. In fact, there is nothing fixed about free speech doctrine at all. It's a grab bag of analogies, invented for the occasion arguments, theoretical slogans, shady distinctions, and ad hoc exemptions to those distinctions, all combining to make it an artifact of the very politics it supposedly transcends, end quote. So, in other words, this is not a foundation, right? And it can't be a foundation. No, it's a rhetoric, uh, a powerful one, and one in which uh, uh, the, the uh, American public is uh, heavily invested in. Uh, and it's a rhetoric uh, whose uh, shape, content, and application uh, differ, depending on whether it's being invoked, uh, let's say, in a legislative situation or in a commercial situation uh, or in a situation um, involving art uh, or aesthetics or, or sports or anything else. So whenever you're talking about the First Amendment in a detailed um, applicable way rather than in a theoretical way, you also have to begin by asking which First Amendment in relation uh, to what issues. Would I be right in saying um, you see in the application of the First Amendment in history and in real-world political discourse a number of different 
let's call them themes, but a number of different legal arguments and precepts and conversational strategies that sometimes can pull together, but sometimes can be incoherent and contradict one another. Yeah, I think that's 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 accurate, yes. Okay. Um I had a question about this just as an opinion piece. Um, can the ideal... So this is just me sort of stating an opinion. Um, can the ideal of the free speech principle, let's call it that as opposed to the First Amendment, but can the idea of free speech as a valuable moral aim be salvaged by abandoning the idea of it as a foundational principle, but seeing it as a consequence or... Um, one specific instance of a general application of a pluralistic liberalism that wants to pursue a, a variety of different goods, which, you know, that is simply to say that human beings desire different things in the world and there will be conflicts between those things. So someone like John Stuart Mill in this respect says he sees um, the free speech instance uh, principle as, quote, a specific instance of a more general way of seeing the world. Well, certainly that is Mill's position, and for him, free speech uh, follows from the uh, emphasis, uh, actually emphasis is a weak word, uh, for the primacy, uh, in, in his mind, uh, of the individual, uh, autonomous individual, Free to make his or her choices, and not and not imposed on uh, by some uh, authority that has been uh, installed in advance. In fact, one might say, when defining uh, liberalism and especially liberal politics, the key is to realize that in a liberal theory of government, authority has been displaced uh, from persons or groups uh, whose word is to be taken uh, without reflection or interrogation. Uh, and instead, in the liberal system, authority is given to individual men and women who, working either singly or in concert, are trying to figure out what is true. So rather than truth being delivered from on high, as it were, by a god or by a monarch or by a, uh, by a theocracy, uh, in the liberal vision, uh, truth is what you and I uh, and others um, attempt uh, to figure out, and our attempts should not be hindered uh, in advance. No idea uh, should be regarded as so holy that it could not be challenged, and no idea should be regarded uh, as so beyond the pale uh, that it should not be given a voice. That, I think, is the key uh, to the high valuation uh, of free speech that you find uh, in On Liberty. But then, of course, even in On Liberty, he has his... Uh, I'm forgetting the example, but it's a bit like you can't... You, you're allowed to say that corn dealers are starving the poor. Right. But you right. can't say it before an excitable mob. So even in On Liberty, he starts putting dis distinction, as yes. you say, and, distinctions and, and qualifiers in there. Yeah, that's a very important moment at the beginning, I think, of the third chapter of On Liberty, because it's uh, Mill's attempt to make a distinction, which, it, which itself then underlies and supports the basic distinction hmm. without which uh, free speech doctrine can't survive, and that is the distinction between speech and action. So what Mill is trying to do by, his, by that example, 
whereby you stand up in Parliament uh, or, or perhaps in a street corner discussion and you say hostile things about corn dealers. Well, there you're giving your opinion, and someone else could give his or her opinion. But if you gathered a mob and led them over to the house of the corn dealer and repeated the same things loudly directed at the windows of that house, then uh, instead uh, instead of expressing your opinion, you will have slid, uh, Mills implies, uh, into acts of intimidation, threat, and down the road, perhaps violence. Uh, and that's the distinction that he wants to make, and that's the distinction that many free speech theorists want to make. Because if you can't make that, if you can't have a category of speech uh, which is uh, segregated uh, from action, but instead exists in the realm of contemplation or political debate, if, if in fact you thought that every form of speech was potentially a form of action, uh, then uh, the First Amendment. Um, would make no sense. So, right, but I mean, most people will regard that as common sense, right? You can say what you want about other people, but you can't use your speech to um, uh, threaten harm to them, or in a way that is very likely to cause, you know, actionable harm to them. But again, if I'm reading you correctly, you want to say um, that the speech and action distinction isn't coherent or doesn't make sense or runs into problems in application, right? I think it's a useful distinction in, in some legal context uh, where you want to make a point for your side that you can invoke it. But as a distinction that stands up uh, to uh, philosophical interrogation, uh, I, I think it, in fact, uh, uh, does not. Uh, one example or counterexample to the strong John Stuart Mill view uh, is what happened in Germany uh, in the in in the late 20s uh, and 30s, uh, leading up uh, to the late 30s, uh, where years and years of anti-Semitic rhetoric, uh, that is, anti-Semitic speeches, slogans, signs, newspaper articles, uh, songs, placards, and all of the rest, uh, finally uh, made, uh, in the eyes of those who engaged in it, uh, made legitimate uh, Kristallnacht, the, the destruction of many Jewish uh, schools and businesses and uh, and uh, homes, uh, and finally uh, legitimated the entire project known as the Final Solution. So the question is, to what extent can you make a distinction uh, between speech uh, that is just part of a general conversation and speech that is inciting uh, to a form of action uh, that you uh, feel is deplorable. And I'm saying that that distinction cannot be made in a theoretical or general way. Uh, and a lot of people who uh, uh, work in the uh, free speech slash hate speech uh, area uh, are committed to finding a general principle that distinguishes hate speech from other forms of speech. And I say in this book that they will never find uh, such a distinction. So that brings us on to the topic of hate speech and paradoxes of tolerance. Just before we get to that, um, I did want to ask a question about accepting 
accepting everything you've just said um, as about the the lack of availability of a clear theoretical principle, I had I wanted to ask where that should leave our overall evaluation of the sort of John Stuart Mill um, liberal project, um, and I found a couple of very short quotes just because they put it better than um, I'm going to, to kind of, like, um, express how I think we should regard liberalism in light of those failures and contradictions. So the first one's from Galston. He says, Liberalism is a basket of ideals that invariably come into conflict with one another. If a serious effort is made to realise any one of them fully, let alone all of them simultaneously, which would speak to the contradictions in application that we've been talking about. And he identifies that just as sort of a general feature of liberalism. But picking up from that quote, um, the ideological theorist um, Michael Frieden goes on to say, that's actually what's valuable about liberalism, is that these central ideals, core concepts as he calls them, do sometimes conflict and constrain each other in ways that are sort of messy and unpredictable, and actually that's precisely the point. He writes, the relationship of liberty, individualism, and progress is one of mutual dependence. It is impossible to disentangle them and to position any one concept alone at the core of Mill's argument. The natural proximity of the core concepts holds them in check, preventing any one from being taken to extremes and ruling out any areas of meaning which each concept could logically signify. So in other words, that's actually precisely the point, is if you say, my, if you take a true foundationalist view and say my doctrine is all about liberty or all about individualism or all about rationality or all about free speech, that way madness lies. And in fact, a mature liberalism just sort of says all of these things are valuable, they will contradict, and the fact that we sort of view a pluralism of moral goals is sort of the point, and it's a way of thinking about the world rather than a set of conclusions. So that was a little long, but that sort of represents my yeah, view. Yeah, well, that was just... very interesting. Now, who was the author of the first quotation, please? That was Galston. So, uh, liberal... Oh, Bill Galston? William Galston? Yes. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. I just wanted to make sure (laughs) whether I was going to disagree with someone I know or someone I don't know. (laughs) That that sometimes makes a difference. Uh, Now, uh, you used the word pluralism here, and you did earlier in another uh, uh, question uh, that you posed. I must say that I'm made very nervous by the notion of pluralism, not as a descriptive fact, that is the fact, of course, uh, that in our uh, our society and in many other societies, uh, there is a plurality of views about what is central and about what we should do and about how we should do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's if that's pluralism, it's merely descriptive. Uh, I have no quarrel with it. Uh, but uh, following Isaiah Berlin uh, mainly, but some others, following Isaiah Berlin, some people believe that pluralism is in fact a philosophy. Uh, or a point of reference uh, uh, from the vantage point of which you can develop uh, successful uh, political and institutional strategies. Uh, that I uh, that 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 I can't sign on to uh, at all. Uh, so again, uh, if you 
if pluralism is merely a descriptive uh, of the uh, uh, of the many-sided uh, uh, features uh, of our intellectual and philosophical life, fine. Uh, but if 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 one wants to take it seriously and say something like, well, because of pluralism, pluralism therefore we should do X. Uh, I'm uh, I'm going to have already gotten off that particular train. I think though there might be um, a third available um, understanding of it, um, which I mean, l l firstly, pluralism as a fact about the world seems pretty darn obvious. Pluralism in, in the Isaiah Berlin sense, you know, might. <sighs> It's been a while since I read Berlin, but it might mean sort of you have to consider different moral systems. I'm more making this as a point. Well, I mean, you could make it as a point about um, meta ethics, right? So, um, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, Bentham believed that everything could be reduced to uh, utility, which could all be measured along a single spectrum. Mill right. then refines that and says, no, there's higher and lower pleasures, and there's goods that are just sort of non-comparable, they're non-commensurate, there's not a measure of, um, there's not a, a measure of exchange between them. And when I say liberal pluralism, what I mean is the idea that we recognise that there are different sorts of goods that can't all be reduced down to one good, or to put it in our previous language, one foundation from which all others can flow. And so in this world, we want people to be happy. We want them to have high welfare. We also want them to be autonomous. And there might not necessarily be a number of units of autonomy that's worth a number of units of welfare. And so liberalism recognises that pluralism of goals and says, you know, we're going to have to decide in practice how that they might support each other, or how they might conflict with one another, and how we deal with them when they conflict. That's more what I had in mind when I said pluralism. All right, well, <laughs> what, I, what I would do in response to that is seize, perhaps unfairly, uh, on your word recognize, which you used uh, twice. Uh, that is, in describing what liberalism uh, does or urges us to do, is recognize that there are different uh, sorts of goods uh, which may not be uh, reconcilable uh, uh, under a single rubric. The question I would ask is, what work does the word recognize do? Or to put it perhaps uh, in a more straightforward way, uh, if you do recognize uh, that, for instance, that there are different sorts of goods that cannot be uh, brought under a, a single a metaphysical rubric. Uh, what then follows from that recognition? Uh, or in a more familiar philosophical uh, vocabulary, what work does that recognition do? And I, my answer to that would be none whatsoever. Uh, hmm. That is, it, it, it's uh, I would say that yeah, let's let's recognize uh, that there are different sorts of goods that can't be that cannot themselves uh, be brought under a, a, a single uh, uh, umbrella, and then and then I want to say okay, therefore, and my my uh, uh, assertion would be that nothing follows that therefore that the recognition does not then either obligate you to anything or show you the way to anything. Um, okay, let me try and respond. Um, 
When I say recognize, I don't think I'm doing anything especially philosophically deep. I'm just giving an intuitive reaction to the various sorts of arguments and narratives and ways of framing and describing the world that exist within meta-ethics. And I'm saying, I find this way of thinking about it more plausible than another way. It's not true by definition, and it's not true... There's no independent measurement that could come in and make it true. But when we discuss, you know... um. Uh, is there a number of units of going to the opera that equals, um, that can be measured in, like, eating saltine chips? It seems obvious to me that there's not. Again, it's not true by definition. It, I would say it's obvious in the same way that elephants are larger than mice. Like, we can just, like, at a certain point, you just have to say, this is what I find plausible as mm -hmm. a description. In terms of what follows, um, I'm not quite sure why you're so hardcore on that. I would say what follows from that is an understanding that the great ideological traditions, not just um, liberalism, but conservatism, socialism, mature ideological projects, which I mean both implicit and explicit value commitments, as well as histories and discourses, are bundles of goods, and that those goods work to support each other, but also constrain each other. And a common line you hear is that um, any ideology taken to extremes um, is necessarily going to lead to madness, in that, that it will either be incoherent, or you can get some truly sociopathic positions by just pursuing reason alone, or individuality alone. And actually, the point of a mature political discourse is to sort of reconcile different goods off against each other. So to take the applied case, um, we want autonomy, we want um, the free exchange of ideas, we also want welfare, security, and stability, and sometimes those will conflict. And the recognition gives you a starting point of saying, there is not going to be a final answer here. We have to say that there are these different values, and then in the circumstances of the world, how do we get a certain amount of all of them? I'll pause there. Okay, well, the answer to that question, how do we, in the various circumstances of the world, how do we get on with what we want to do? Uh, that question is not going to in any way be answered by your realization or recognition uh, that there uh, are any number of, of goods uh, plausibly put forward in the world uh, and uh, no final ranking of them. That is, I don't think you can get from uh, an observation like that, uh, uh, an observation uh, about which uh, we certainly uh, agree, uh, to any plan uh, or a set of actions whatsoever. And as to another of the questions that you put to me in a very complicated uh, statement, why am I so hardcore on this? <laughs> uh, I'm hardcore on this because people who talk the pluralist way or talk the pluralist line often, often, then say something like, 
if you are a pluralist, and this is indeed uh, the implication of uh, Isaiah Berlin's famous uh, lectures, uh, if you are a pluralist, you will let then uh, be less likely to be a fanatic or take things to extremes. Uh, you will be more willing to uh, hear uh, the other fellow's position um, and at least grant it uh, a theoretical or hypothetical plausibility, or in the words of the late uh, President uh, uh, George Bush, the elder, you will be a kinder, gentler person. That's what I resist, the idea that the philosophical position that you hold will, in fact, then translate into other aspects of your life, uh, whether they be uh, political or characterological um, um, or anything else. That's, uh, uh, that's a, uh, a uh, cause and effect or, or line of cause and effect that I am always resisting. No, we agree there, and we should move on, because perhaps we're just inferring slightly different things into the word pluralism. But no, look, liberalism is a political ideology, which means it's partly emotional, it's partly rational, it's partly justifiable, it's partly unjustifiable. It contains contradictions and incoherences that can't be fully solved, either in the mind of one person or in a collective. And it, it attempts to give us a way of understanding and interacting with the world that's always going to creak uneasily when we attempt to project it onto a real-world reality that we haven't fully understood. Now, in saying all of that, I'm just putting it in the same sort of ball court as we would conservatism, as we would socialism, as we would feminism or fascism or what have you. Liberalism doesn't get to claim any special privileged status epistemically. All of these ideologies are just trying to make sense of the fact that there are different and conflicting things that human beings yeah desire. Yeah, I, so, I so know, go ahead, sorry. I know that you want to get on to something else, but I would just substitute for the word ideologies, uh, the, the word I've uh, uh, invoked uh, previously, rhetorics. Liberalism is a rhetoric. Yes. Um, and, uh, and it has some, uh, some uh, obvious moving parts, individualism, uh, free choice, uh, free flow, uh, of, of, of ideas, collective political action, a whole series of other things uh, come along with it, and it's therefore uh, a useful repertoire um, in many, and I'm sure you would agree, but not all situations. Uh, and that's where I would want to leave it. Yeah, um, I, and I think we can leave it there, and just on the ideology rhetoric point, when I'm talking about ideology, I'm quite influenced, well, I mean, he was my tutor back in the day, um, by Michael Frieden, who uses and insists upon the word ideology, so I've sort of picked that up too, but his way of thinking about it is so wholly um, premised in linguistics that... I think the substitution of the word rhetoric is um, perfectly acceptable in, in, that, in, in, the, in the way I'm using it. I think you could use them either way. Okay. Okay. Um, 
One final point, and I, I, we, we seem to get stuck on this, is if liberalism isn't more than another ideology, it's not. it doesn't have claim to some sort of unique, like you say, open-mindedness or being charitable to the other fella. Um, you know, yeah. liberalism has its blood and glory moments as much as other ideologies do. Um, it's not less than either. And I think there can be a move critique, critics of liberalism make where they point these things out about liberalism. Um... And that's fine, um, but it's like you haven't debunked liberalism. You're just no, saying no. that it has the features that these right. rhetorics have. You and know? often, yeah, often those who are debunkers of liberalism, as I have been for many years, mm. after the debunking is done, uh, go eat, go out and live a recognizably liberal life. Right. So I'm sorry, I did just want to make that point now. If we try and get a little bit back to the practical, um, we talked about the contradictions, and you know we we really descended on on that one. But then one of the obvious contradictions is what you might call paradoxes of tolerance. So speech should be protected unless it's action. But what about if the speech isn't urging any action, but as in the case of the Weimar Republic, building up a culture? in which yeah. that action becomes probable or maybe even inevitable. That concern would then seem to give rise to the idea of hate speech. Um, that would seem to be the answer to that. But again, you want to say that you're, if you're looking for a clear account of what is and isn't hate speech, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I do, I do however, agree with the characterization that, that you've just offered. Uh, that is, that there are forms of speech which may not be uh, uh, directly urging action, but which uh, have the effect of building up a culture uh, that, um, uh, that uh, almost uh, exudes action or leads inevitably uh, uh, to action. Uh, now, the question of whether or not that form of speech or those forms of speech that do that uh, should be regulated depends on whether or not you think that the action they lead to is good or bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to be a question that is beset with all of the uh, problems and difficulties that always uh, beset the attempt uh, to distinguish sharply between what is good uh, and what is not. And that's in general what I mean when I say that uh, in the book that hate speech cannot be defined. Uh, that is, you can't come up with a definition of hate speech to which all rational persons, uh, with which all rational persons uh, would agree. Uh, and uh, so um, in the absence of such a definition, at least uh, in, in the course of my discussion, uh, hate speech becomes speech that is loudly and in some to some extent, uh, persuasively uh, spoken by your enemy, uh, and that there's no possibility, uh, or at least that's my argument uh, in one of the chapters uh, in the book, of coming up with a definition uh, of hate speech uh, that would be uh, philosophically or generally coherent. So that leads me on to my next point, and I wrote it down because it's a complicated thought. Um, but um, I wrote down, politics isn't just the domain of contestation, so in which we debate particular policies and indeed particular values. It is that, but people assume that that contestation 
operates within fixed rules that everyone agrees to. There are rules to the contestation, but those rules are also contested, and necessarily so, because the only way you could justify one of those rules would be with reference to values which are also being contested. So as in your case, if hate speech is speech that is meeting some threshold of harm, we would need to then invoke values to tell us what harm is bad enough to meet that threshold, and those values are going to be contested. I'll pause there. Well, actually, the uh, it would be uh, what's going to be contested is perhaps deeper than that, uh, because you would have to have an agreement uh, uh, as to what was and was not a harm. Hmm. Uh, so the example that I use a couple of times in the book is the Westboro Baptist Church, hmm. uh, a small uh, group of uh, largely uh, biologically uh, related persons, uh, most of whom, by the way, are lawyers, uh, <laughs> who uh, appear at the funerals of uh, young uh, soldiers uh, with signs saying things like, God hates fags, or uh, your son is going to burn in hell, uh, and uh, of course, uh, causing incredible pain uh, to family members who already are in incredible pain. Uh, so what does one say to that group? Well, uh, one can say to them, what you uh, are doing is absolutely hateful, to which their response uh, might be, uh, no, what we're doing is saying truth to a world in need of it. Hmm. Saying truth to a world in need of it. Now, there is no way to adjudicate uh, claims like that. Uh, hate speakers, when they are so described by others, do not believe that they are speaking hate. Mm. Uh, one has to begin by assuming the existence of sincere hate speakers, something that a lot of people have difficulty in doing. This is an, an assumption that one uh, uh, sees uh, 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 illustrated uh, often that those who speak what we call hate speech are insincere or irrational or uh, possessed by malign motives, etc., etc. Now, you have to begin with the idea that these people really believe what they're saying and believe that what they are saying uh, is necessary for you and I and everyone else uh, to hear. Uh, once you realize that, then the problem of uh, con containing, uh, defining, corralling uh, hate speech, I think, is highlighted. Could I push back on one thing, which is you sure. said um, there's no way to adjudicate. Well, there are ways to adjudicate. We have a plethora of ways of adjudicating that. But there's no way of adjudicating that could be final, that could remain uncontested. And most importantly, there's no way of adjudicating whose premises, much less its conclusions, could command the universal assent of all of the parties um, uh, who would be affected by the yeah, decision. Yeah, I would, I, would I would accept that. Uh, and the conclusion to that is, of course, that universal assent uh, is too high or, or, or stringent right. a demand. And that what we, in fact, are after uh, is a degree of uh, consent that will, that will allow the enterprise, whatever it is, uh, to keep going. Uh, and that's, of course, uh, 
what the yield of politics uh, often is, or we hope the yield of politics is, that uh, after uh, contestation uh, and debate, sometimes a bit of debate, uh, we work out something that for a while uh, at least uh, provides uh, a framework for everyday action. But I'm sure that you would agree that that framework, which, while, which uh, uh, can be achieved, is also fragile um, and uh, may be upset by the next round of contestation, uh, after which perhaps there will be uh, another framework uh, that emerges uh, uh, equally uh, fragile. And that, to me, is the way in which uh, the political life proceeds, uh, not toward a final union, not toward uh, a perfect realization of uh, political community in which all voices are heard and all persons are respected, uh, but to something uh, uh, much uh, less uh, of an ideal uh, and more of a modus vivendi. Yeah, this reminds me of a distinction you could make between, um, say, the older liberalism of John Stuart Mill and contemporary philosophical liberalism of, say, John Rawls, is in the case of the Westboro Baptist Church and the fact that there is no method of adjudicating that that would have universal consent. What rules would do is say, well, we only need to have universal consent amongst quote-unquote, and I put really heavy scare quotes around this word, reasonable people, and then you yes, can right. get universal consent, but just by radically um, drawing in the circle. Now, my view on that is it just kicks the philosophical can down the road, because then you're going to have to adjudicate what reasonable means, and it turns out that there's going to be quite a lot of contested concepts that go into adjudicating that. Um, Mill's way is just to bite the bullet and say, well, here is my value system, here's why I think it's conducive to human happiness and flourishing, and I'll try and argue it for you, but yeah, you may not accept it. And neither, neither of those arguments get you over the hurdle that you can't get universal buy-in, because that's just not a hurdle that is clearable. Neither do that. Aesthetically, I prefer Mills. Uh, yes, uh, although uh, I think that the Rawls project is heroic, hmm. uh, even even if it perhaps uh, uh, cannot uh, be achieved, because he's what he's trying to do is to have no value system hmm. and to work out a, a way of thinking about political life, uh, which doesn't involve affirming any value system, hmm. but instead operates on what he calls. Uh, an overlapping consensus. I don't think that that finally does work, and the only example that he gives in a footnote uh, in political liberalism on uh, the question of abortion uh, shows why it doesn't work. Uh, but nevertheless, in both uh, political liberalism and theory of justice, uh, it, it is, I think, a magnificent project uh, rigorously uh, unfolding and uh, merits uh, the praise that it has received. Mm. I mean, I think, well, we, we won't get lost in rules because that's another... But to come back to this idea, though, of there's no way of adjudicating what is or is not hate speech or um, anything like that, that, that even its premises could attain universal consent, is to sort of say that 
again, with, with what I started this section with, um, not just political parties or issues or even values are under contestation, but the processes and procedures and rules of that contestation are in themselves part of it and can only be justified with reference to, let's use your word, these disputed political rhetorics. Now, accepting that, most people are really reluctant to do. I find both sort of just people with political opinions as well as um, political actors and even political theorists find that a really unsettling thought, almost like that feeling of you're walking up a staircase in the dark and you put your foot on a stair that turns out not to be there, and that little flip in your stomach as that happens. And I think that flip is understandable because we are trained to see an objectivity that's not there but that objectivity is just a consequence of the fact that these rhetorics, ideologies as I call them, um, make claims for themselves in the hardest possible terms, because they have to, because they're in competition with each other, and they want to win that competition. And that's fine for them to do that, for liberalism to say it is objective in some sense. But if you're going to be a mature political thinker, as opposed to just someone who has political opinions, I don't think it should cause you that much unease to notice that more fundamental sort of contestation. Yes, I think that's right, and this goes back to an earlier point I made. Uh, you might have a philosophical view in the, uh, in, uh, within which you realize uh, the, the, what we might call the depths of the contested. Uh, then the question is, to what extent does that philosophical view weigh on your everyday activities, whether they're business activities or academic activities, legal activities, etc. Uh, and my uh, response to that is not at all, because uh, it's my uh, belief that doing philosophy, while extraordinarily interesting, uh, is one thing, and living out your life in a variety of contexts that present uh, problems for you to solve uh, is quite another. Then. So if the rules are... Well, could, now, could I interject? Please. Could I? Uh, your your uh, descriptions of uh, areas of con contestation, which are ne arenas of contestation, mm -hmm. rather, uh, which are nevertheless uh, 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 arenas uh, ruled by, uh, uh, governed uh, by certain rules, mm -hmm. which are themselves contestable, but which mm -hmm. for at least a period of time, are not being. Uh, this uh, reminded me immediately of the uh, kind of unique political uh, success of, of Donald Trump, mm. uh, who enters a field of contestation the moment uh, that he walks, uh, uh, rides down that escalator uh, in Trump Tower in 2015, but proceeds not to play by its rules. Uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons why he emerged uh, victorious, uh, both in that context contest and the later presidential contest. Uh, everyone else was still playing by the rules within which contestation was understood uh, to take place, and he wasn't uh, playing by those rules. And he continually, therefore, discombobulated them and left them, and I think still leaves the, 
leaves them, that is, uh, uh, his opponents, uh, with uh, no uh, obvious uh, way uh, to counter him. I think there's a thing, let me try to pull my thoughts together on this, where liberalism has sort of become both too successful and not successful enough, and it's lost the ability or the faith in itself to really make arguments in, you know, the bloody knuckles world of actual political process. Here's what I mean by that. Liberalism has been a ferociously successful political rhetoric, and it, it has secured for itself a position, not all the time, but often, not just as the competitor, but as the referee. And it's got to a place where it feels as if, you know, its rhetoric has been successful in defining the rules of contestation um, for so long that it's forgotten that those rules have to be argued for and defended. And to the extent that they were defended, they were defended in academic papers, in court, in, in maybe the, you know, long essays in, in, in high-end journals and, and, and so on. But it had forgotten how to have real-world political conversations, and it had assumed that, 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 at least insofar as the rules of the game go, we really had got to a sort of Rawlsian point where everyone agreed to them, which was always a naive yeah. view. Like, if you look at yeah. public opinion yeah. polls, that was, that, that was an elite consensus. It was never shared by everyone in those societies. And then Donald Trump comes along, or, you know, in my home country of the UK, um, Brexit often gets mentioned in this same sentence. Of course. And we get people who say, I don't like those rules. I don't think that should be how we're playing. And it's not as if there's not responses we can make to that and arguments that, no, actually, these, these are good rules. But we've sort of forgotten how to, to, to make those arguments. That, that's in part because uh, one feature of liberalism's success, as, as you describe it, is that it has produced a Whiggish history mm. uh, in which liberalism is the natural—and this, is, of course, was, of course, the argument uh, of Francis Fukuyama in his uh, 1989 book, mm. uh, The End of History. It's a liberal history in which liberalism is the natural, inevitable, and perhaps even teleological— mm. Uh, end of a uh, contest between uh, different forms of government, and that older forms of government, like monarchies, oligarchies, uh, theocracies, uh, uh, feudal nobilities, uh, and the rest, have now been consigned uh, to the wastebasket of history, uh, where they always belonged uh, anyway. Uh, and the uh, one true uh, mode of thinking about uh, political matters uh, has been revealed. If that's the story you've been telling and telling successfully, it's then awfully hard uh, <laughs> to respond uh, to someone who just doesn't buy that story because you're so out of practice in defending it. Yeah, and I should point out, um, this isn't necessarily um, an argument for Donald Trump. It's not to say yeah. necessarily he's some great strategic genius. He just never bought into the rules of the thing. And a lot of people never did, and it seems like a lot of people were ready to to hear that. And 
Absolutely. The answer on Liberals' part has been this real, I think, knock to our self-confidence that we sort of like, at the one hand disparage and on the other hand despair, in that it's sort of like, what can we possibly say to someone who doesn't abide by our rules of discourse? Because to bring rules back in, if you've said we don't have to give reasons to an unreasonable person. Well, what, what about when they're the bloody president, you know? And, but that, that doesn't mean that, look, you, you have, whether you like to admit it or not, a comprehensive and contestable moral doctrine. If you believe it, argue for it. And if you believe these are the rules of the game that we should be playing by, don't just say you broke the rules. Explain why that is bad or harmful, and in a way that people can understand. And that's—I don't think that complicated. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and I would hope that uh, some of those uh, who are listening to this uh, uh, podcast uh, uh, will go out and do just that. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. As promised, here's a quick list of um, all of the works referenced in that episode and where you can go to learn more. So to start with, the two works by Professor Fish that we reference are his latest book, the first, which we closed with, How to Think About Free Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. The other one we mentioned was There's No Such Thing as Free Speech, and that's a collection of essays by, um, by Prof- uh, Professor Fish. Now, I wasn't either able to find exactly where that quote from Rorty came from, but one work that gets referenced a lot with regards to Rorty and anti-foundationalism would be Richard Rorty, Philosophy and Social Hope. Moving on to free speech, obviously when we're discussing Mill, we're discussing On Liberty, um, which, so look, if you have not read On Liberty, stop what you are doing right now and go and read On Liberty. It's correctly regarded as absolutely central to understanding liberalism and freedom and uh, free speech and all of the issues that we've been talking about. If you listened to an hour of an in-depth political philosophy talk show and you have not read On Liberty, shame on you, go read On Liberty. Um, and On Liberty is very readable and it's quite short, so you don't really need a secondary text to make sense of it, but if you want one, my favourite um, secondary text for Mill, on the sort of more introductory level, is uh, Why Read Mill Today by Skorupski. And I've had uh, Professor John Skorupski on the show. It was one of our first episodes. So if you want to um, go into the Liberty Principle in more detail, I have a whole episode with Professor Skorupski that's by that name. It's just called the Liberty Principle. Um, staying with um, Mill, I talked a little bit about the distinction between Benthamite utilitarianism and John Stuart Mill-type utilitarianism. So the key works there are Utilitarianism by John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham, Principles of Morals and Legislation. 
I... Bentham is quite a hard read, and as one of my guests put it, he does go on a little bit. Um, so the secondary text I'd recommend on that is Utilitarianism by Roger Crisp, and I have an interview with Roger Crisp by that name, just called Utilitarianism. So when I'm talking about, like, are moral goods, um, are there non-contiguous moral goods, um, there's a whole sort of philosophy and debate around that. And um, we cover that, I cover that in the Crisp interview, and um, his book by the same name, Utilitarianism, is also a really good primer on that. Okay, next. When I was talking about um, is liberalism coherent, or does it have, like, you know, different and sometimes contradictory moving parts? The two quotes that I read were, um, Galston, Liberal Virtues, is the name of that book, and the Frieden quote comes from Ideologies and Political Theory by Michael Frieden. If you'll go, if you haven't read Frieden yet, and you sort of want to get into that body of work, but as much as I do recommend Ideologies and Political Theory, that is a hard book. If you're going to try and get into Frieden, I would suggest you start with his very short introductions. There's um, Liberalism, a very short introduction, and Ideology, a very short introduction. And I would read those first, they're quite accessible. And then, if you're going to tackle the big theoretic works, I would read them together with um, the short introductions and sort of go between the two. And I think that's the best way to sort of start acquainting yourself with that theoretical um, framework. And, of course, I've um, interviewed Michael Frieden on the podcast. He was one of our first guests. So, if you want a general sort of overview to his political thought, uh, you can check out that episode as well. Um, moving on to Rawls. So, the primary works for Rawls are Theory of Justice and Political Liberalism. Honestly, with Rawls, and I mean, again, this is just my opinion, take it for what it's worth, but with Rawls, I would start with the secondary texts before you go to the primary texts. And, you know, this is just like a central mainstay of political philosophy courses, so there's just there's just reams and reams and reams of secondary texts on rules. Um, no particular preference here. The one I use is the Cambridge Companion to Rules, and that's just like quite a nice collection of articles that'll sort of talk you through the main issues and debates. That's what I used when I was doing my um, solo episode on rules. Um, but I assume there's other perfectly good collections out there. I quite like the Cambridge Companion, but it's not as if I've read all of them. Um, and as I just said, um, I do have a solo episode titled Mill vs. Rules. So I reference this idea of um, Rawls uses this device of, like, reasonable people to try and overcome some of these uh, boundary issues that I was talking about. So if you're interested in that, I have this whole episode, Mill vs. Rawls, where I'm just talking about that contrast I set up between Mill and Rawls, and I go into the arguments, and I give my own view. So that's that.
finally in the last bit where Professor Fish was talking about um, sort of Whiggish liberal history, the work he referenced there was The End of History by Francis Fukuyama. And yeah, that's what I have down for that. I might have missed a few things, but those are, those are like my main citations for that conversation. And give me feedback, by the way, um, on this little end section I just did. Is this something that I should include regularly in the show? I know people do, do, do use this podcast for, um, you know, help with like college essays and, uh, and stuff like that. So if this is useful for, like, using it for those sorts of purposes, I'll keep doing it. Um, or if it could be done differently or structured differently, um, just let me know. Let me know what you think. Um, I'm happy to do whatever with this. So, yeah, let's sign off. Thank you again for listening. Part two with um, Professor Stanley Fish will be out next week, and there we get into sort of a real back and forth um, about the application of this stuff to some of the um, culture war issues that we see debated on social media all the time. So yeah, hope you'll come and join us for that. Thanks again for listening. Yeah.